welcome to Educational Alpha. Kaya, CEO and host, Bill Kelly, brings you on-the-ground conversations with business leaders, educators, coaches, and industry colleagues from around the globe. In this episode, Bill talks with Fiona Frick, founder of Circe Invest and expert on investment allocation and sustainability issues. With over 30 years of experience in asset management, including 12 years as a CEO, Fiona is recognized by the financial industry as one of the most influential women in European finance. Dedicated to creating bridges between the finance industry, sustainability, and academia, she is a respected speaker on economics, financial markets, investment allocation, and the growth of sustainable finance. Listen in. Welcome to the latest edition of Educational Alpha, where the investor's edge starts with informed consent. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. And today, I'm joined by Fiona Frick. Fiona, great to see you again. Hello. Thank you for having me. I think I last saw you in the course of my travels, maybe late last year, somewhere in Europe. I forget. It was at a conference. It might have been in Switzerland somewhere, but it's good to hear your voice again, and you've changed some roles since then. But maybe we'll start by just reintroducing you or introducing you to the audience. So maybe just a little bit of a thumbnail on Fiona. Okay. So after being CEO for 12 years in a company, an asset management company in gestion, I wanted to do something which was more aligned with sustainability. And I wanted really to be client focused. So I decided to create my own company, which would be around putting together and finding the balance between sustainability and asset allocation. Because what I found is when I have discussion with clients in my previous role and now again in my new role, is that clients, and I speak about institutional clients, they receive information about their board, about they should become sustainable, net zero, include impact in, in their fiduciary duty. And then they receive products from asset managers uh, come, et cetera. But there is no one in the middle that necessarily helps them on understanding what should be the roadmap to go from being more sustainable as a principle to how do you implement it in the asset allocation. With concrete example, what does it mean in terms of active risk? How do you do it in each asset class, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought that because I had done it before at Unigestion for Unigestion and also for several clients, I could be a sort of bridge, independent bridge as a consultant for asset owners and asset managers that want to implement practically sustainability in the asset allocation. I think I saw you, I don't know if there's a video or reported, you had a great line and I think this is your prior role where you said, no risk, no progress. And I think that certainly applies when you're thinking about investing capital, but what's the mindset when you think about that tagline for sustainability and your current role? I think it has great application, but I'm just curious to see how you view that. So what is interesting is that for institutional clients, Adding sustainability today is seen as a risk because at the end it brings active risk, which is tracking error. And then the time frame of when is this active risk going to pay is not necessarily the time frame, which is the time and when they are measured in terms of performance. Because in fact, when will better company companies which are better managed in terms of uh, climate transition will have an alpha in regards to others? can be in five years, can be in 10 years, can be in 20 years. Because in fact, before 2050, we will not necessarily know who is the winner in that story. So there is a sort of 
active risk that you have to take if you, if you want to integrate sustainability, which is not necessarily aligned with the time frame of investors or investment managers or CIO in institutional clients. So that's the risk you have to take when you integrate sustainability. But at the end, we believe that because a climate transition, loss of biodiversity, inequality are systemic risk, these are risks at what point that you should avoid. And therefore, you will be better off if you manage your portfolio in a sustainable way in terms of long-term performance rather than in terms of short-term performance. You mentioned two things in there which struck me, Fiona. You mentioned long-term and time frame, which are, are very critical in that you know, this concept of a double bottom line. If I'm thinking about the short-term and operating pure self-interest, I can push the envelope and maximize short-term return to my benefit. But should I be doing that? Should I be ignoring a lot of these inputs that longer term are going to be bad for the society, bad for our children, bad for our grandchildren? So how do we reconcile maybe the a little bit of maybe the greed factor about trying to grab as much as I can in terms of basis points today and worry about some of these other risks tomorrow? So I would say the question could be for a general investor, but if you speak to an institutional investor such as a pension fund or an insurance company or a sovereign wealth fund, at the end, his time frame is long term. He's working for the retirement of the people that will come in 30 years, 40 years. He has a strategic allocation, which is 30 years for 40 years. So in that framework, which is 30 to 40 years, the fiduciary duty is to make sure that the, in, the client or the, the, the pensioners, etc., gets the best risk-adjusted return. So sustainability makes value there because the time frame from a pension fund or from an institutional client is very long. You could argue that perhaps for a hedge fund manager, which is measured on the monthly performance, that this is not the case. But I would say that fiduciary duty and sustainability goes well in hand for institutional investors because it is a way to avoid systematic risk in your portfolio. I absolutely agree with that. And I think we need more long-term thinking. And I think at this stage of the product cycle, I think oftentimes, and maybe in the US, but certainly around the world, we're thinking about democratizing access and creating more liquid vehicles, which is sort of plays into short-termism. And I think we've got the investor to think back, take a seat back and, and try to direct that capital to where it can best be used. And that's oftentimes solving for long-term issues, long-term challenges. And, and I think we as an industry have to do a better job around explaining the benefits of long-term investing. So to agree, because I believe that what we're living now, obviously, is like a sort of industrial revolution. Every industry will have to face how it transforms itself in a world where it has either to transition, either to adapt to climate change. And it will have huge consequences on country sovereign rating, on company business model. And you have to take that into account. The only thing is you don't know if this is going to hit in 2025, 2030 or 2050. But obviously, it is an industrial revolution. And like in any industrial revolution, there are opportunities to be seized by investors. 
Yep, I absolutely agree. So I want to come back to Circle Invest for a second, Fiona, and maybe the reasons why and why now. And uh, every career has its uh, seasons and reasons to a large degree. And maybe like you, I left the CEO post of a large asset management firm many years ago, and I'll be celebrating my 10th anniversary at Kaya in another few short months. And and I'm not sure the motivation that drove me here, but I'm very happy I am because it put me in a very different vantage point where I'm not having to explain investment performance to a client. I'm really trying to explain to the asset managers and the industry as a whole why more transparency leads to better outcomes in the long term. So you made a very interesting pivot recently to Service Invest. And was this a seasonal shift or was it purposeful or is this something that was just locked up inside of you and you just had to move in this direction? I'm just curious about the motivation. I find it a very interesting and admirable move. I think a purpose which was locked up in, in myself for quite a while. While I was at Unigestion, I, I, I tend to spend a lot of time taking care of sustainability. First, when I was head of equity, we implemented sustainability in equity, first as a risk factor and then as a as an opportunity factor. And then when I became CEO, my role was to, to include that in all the asset class that we were managing at Unigestion and also in the ethos of the company. And I wanted to go further in that direction. And, and when I was speaking with, with institutional clients, I saw that there was a need for an independent consultant that comes and helps them without having in mind at the end to sell them a product or a performance. And I thought that was going to be a nice transition for me to be that bridge, to be that independent consultant, which will tackle the two things which I preferred in my job, which was one working with sustainability and, and understanding how to invest in a sustainable way. And second, working with institutional clients, because I, I like the way they allocate capital and, and the reflection behind that, which I found very complex and sophisticated. And the interest in sustainability, I think, largely speaking, varies by geography. Is your client base more European-centric? And if it is, is there a message to the U.S. market? Do we need to follow an example or do better, do differently? Or, or do you see all clients uh, created equal in terms of where they are on this sustainability spectrum in terms of awareness? <laughs> Several answers to that. Even in Europe, there's a lot of difference. So there are the institutional clients that consider sustainability as a way to manage risk. And therefore, you have to reduce the risk of some ESG factors and therefore you invest in a way that reduces this risk. So it's, it's mainly a risk mitigation factor, which is mainly the case today in Switzerland or in Germany. And you have other countries in Europe like the Nordics, where they believe their fiduciary duty is not only to the retiree or the end client, but also to society on a larger term. And when they say society is the social benefit that their investment can have. So you really have the two views in Europe. And I would say that in the US, you have the same thing. You have obviously some region of the US, which are perhaps more going on the other direction, but you have pension funds such as CalPERS and CalSTRS, which have been at the forefront of that subject for decades. So it's really different between institutional investors. And it's really different, I would say, on how do they define their fiduciary duty. And you know, I think those differences come back to a lot of things, but maybe most notably, very little in life is black or white. 
we mostly travel in shades of gray and, and everything else in between. And maybe to prove to you, I did a little bit of homework before this discussion, Fiona. I went all the way back to your undergraduate days. And, and I took note that you a, were a literature and philosophy major, which I found incredibly interesting because that is gray. It's not black or white. And we have so many black and white thinkers in this industry. Maybe that was not part of your grand plan back then, but, but I think it does open the mind up. Now, you went on and got your MBA clearly, and that was obviously important. But how important is an open mind and understanding the vagaries of the shade of gray, both in your prior role and your current role you're in today? It creates complexity, which I love. <laughs> in fact, I found that when you study philosophy, you end up finding 20 ways to answer the question that everybody has, which is what is the meaning of life and how to be happy and how to do good. And at the end, what I liked about philosophy and, and literature, it gives you different perspectives and way of answering that question. And when I started finance, I found the same. At the end, you can believe in modern portfolio theory, which thinks that everything can be quantitative, or you can believe in behavioral finance, where you believe that psychology influences markets. So what I found fascinating is that there is a correlation with financial markets and philosophy and literature, because financial market is the sum of all the emotions of the investors that invest in the market. So I would say that I have learned more from philosophy and, and, and uh, about behavioral finance than studying perhaps some theory which were perhaps too simplistic about financial theory. So I agree with that, and I have a, a proof statement that I'm going to share with you in a second. But but it does underscore, you know, I think we talk about DE&I quite often, and, and maybe it's more in the popular vernacular here in the U.S., but it's important around the world. And, and I think it oftentimes comes down to, to gender and race, which is clearly important and we need to do better. But it also is background and experience. And if we're hiring MBAs from the same business school, we've got people that are trained the same way, thinking the same way. And then you've got a concentration of views, which leads to a concentration of risks. So I think maybe a word to some of the listeners out there that we need to take all comers. It doesn't have to be the Baker Scholar from Harvard. And if we have too many of those, that doesn't lead to good outcomes too. So I think a broader understanding of what diversity, equity, inclusion means, I think you just put a bold underscore. I totally agree. You need people also that have different education background. And just having people that have done finance and economics is not necessarily good because you believe too much in your theory. And perhaps if you have students that don't have history or psychology, you'll see that there is perhaps a complexity which is not uh, seen in economical model. Yep, I agree. So I watched a short video early this morning and it was about the way we do money. And a couple of quotes in that video, it talked about the role of artificial intelligence, the use of technology, and man versus machine. And you would have thought this was circa yesterday around ChatGPT. It was you in 2016. And I was like, my God, you had a vision back then. And were people talking about AI? I guess so. That term is 50, 60 years old, but not so much in this industry, maybe about the Uber driver running over the cab dispatcher. But it was interesting that you saw around that corner so long ago. You may not remember the video itself, but obviously you had this view and the role of technology. Maybe a little bit of background in terms of why you saw that blind spot that maybe others missed and are just starting to talk about it now. Before I became CEO, I was head of equity at Unigestion and I, and I built a quantitative model 
to manage equity build on, on the minimum variance anomaly, which is the idea that if you invest in a portfolio which has low risk, you get equal to better return than market cap because you have a portfolio which is better diversified and there is no premium for high risk stock. And and the theory was really nice. And I remember reading all the articles, etc. And we started implementing these models. And at that point, we started seeing what was available. There was some factor model, etc. After using factor model, we went to PCA model, which are more like the beginning of artificial intelligence, where you don't necessarily understand the factor, but you see that these stocks move together for a reason that you don't necessarily understand. We saw when we went from one school of thought, which was you have predefined factor that you as human has defined, or you let the market choose which are the factors which works, there was obviously a much, much better description of the risk and the potential return of a stock. And then we liked investing in quantitative model, which moved from traditional factors to artificial intelligence, because we believe that it gave a very good explanation of a broad set of data that us as human cannot put together. So we always thought that by going more and more in these machine learning and artificial intelligence, you could grasp the overall information which is in the market, while as human, we just end up picking a few bits of information. So that is this massive informed decision-making process, which is being capable with machine learning and artificial intelligence. I think nevertheless, you still have to have an open eye as a human behind that because at one point the machine will be as good as the information which is in the past and if there is a huge change in the market then the machine will not necessarily understand it from day one so that's why we always been a proponent of using machine as enabler of decision making process and and use it as the default option because obviously the machine has the capability to process so much data so quickly but then have some controlled by human, because if there is a shift of paradigm at one point and that the machine hasn't seen that in the past, like it was with COVID, for example, then you have to have the human brain, which comes with this creativity and forward-looking basis and says, okay, that's a new scenario. We have, we have to assess risk differently. I've played a little bit with chat GPT and other iterations of this uh, generative AI. And it can do a lot and it can look at these large language models and, and parse data very well. But if you ask it to say, well, what does this mean tomorrow or next quarter? It gives you the disclosure saying, hey, that's not my expertise. And I think in our industry, we've used quantitative tools for many, many times. And, and it started with maybe the Abacus and then the, uh, the garden variety uh, PC at the desktop. But these are just, uh, it's more of an evolution than the revolution. And I think some people are looking at it as a revolution when we just have more data and more tools to analyze that data. And, and I think you're right. It's not going to be the machine replacing us. So we shouldn't fear the machine. We should maybe fear our lack of development and knowledge. And we've got to keep pace. And maybe it's a broader set of skills we have to take on as professionals. I think going back on a discussion of philosophy, the, the machine will not take tell us, OK, what is the next move I have to take in my life? Or what is the next move I have to take on the market? It will be there to help you say, historically, this is what happened. And if I've... And geographically, this is what happened. It will have a, it will give you a view, which is a condensed view of the past, and then you have to take your decision. So you will still have to take your forward-looking decision, but with much more informed backward information.
I agree. Before we move to a close, I did want to quickly ask you about GIST, G-I-S-T. So you just joined the advisory board recently, but I think it's a good segue because I don't understand the model all that well, but they seem to be using data and technology. So maybe talk a little bit about the role and the mission and maybe segueing to maybe an application for the use of data. Okay. So again, what I found fascinating with sustainability and climate risk and climate change is that at the end, it's a lot about data, new kind of data, which we haven't been using. And it's becoming very scientific because obviously if you want to measure biodiversity risk, you need satellite imaging, you need sounds and to see how, how the noise, if it means that there is diversity. And this reminds me a lot about the quantitative method we used at the beginning when we managed equity, rather than it, it has moved from trying to have an appreciation of revenues and financial results to trying to understand what are the extra financial data of a company, such as what is its impact on environment, what is its impact on biodiversity, etc. So it's again a data play. And for me, we will be able to advance in sustainability if we are able to get the good data. And GIST's impact is about that. It's about engineering, measuring, climate risk, biodiversity risk, human capital, all these data which are coming from different sources, which are not necessarily the annual report, and making them at disposition available to, to, to investors. And for me, the name of the game for sustainability is good data, which explains my interest for, for guests, because I think they have very good data on impact. And whatever informed decision I want to do in sustainability, I will need good data on impact. And I think that then the more independent that data can be, I think disclosure and measurement are the two biggest obstacles to trying to manage any risk. And when you talk about ESG and assuming it's a single risk factor, first off, that's not correct. But then you've got to think about the sub-risks below and, and data is what unlocks it clearly. So Fiona, Educational Alpha is the title of this podcast. It's always uh, pleasing to the listener to maybe have a bit of a takeaway. Congratulations on what I think has been an awesome career with many legs left to it. I think you've done an excellent job of pursuing not only your interests, but keeping the best interest of the investor uh, close to heart, which I think is great too. But any closing observations uh, for the audience? No, I look forward for my next leg, which I will say it's very client focused and which I believe is really important for investment and uh, for society. I think it's quite important to, to give meaning to finance again. And finance is a, is a catalyst to change and a catalyst to opportunity. So it is important that we go and explain what is finance about and why is it useful to society. Well put. I think that on my side, I'm probably in the autumn of years in terms of the seasonality of my career. I think you're more in the spring and I, I look for, for many great seasons ahead and I'm sure I'll see you somewhere around the world. But uh, Fiona, uh, thanks for the insights and uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time. Mm-hmm.